This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right, we're about to talk about Sepulcher's book, Desert of Paradise, and uh, do the next 20 pages. I, I reviewed the 20 pages because we've got uh, just 40 pages left in the whole book, and I thought we'd do 20 and 20. And, and uh, the stuff today, there's a, lot, there's a lot of good stuff. And, uh, but, but first, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about like, well, what's happened in the last week that we might want to mention? And, uh, I've got two things. One is that, uh, the Willie Smith's video went out and I think you've all seen it. Um, and I think it's really profound because basically Willie is talking about, all right, there's these coral reefs over here that are getting absolutely destroyed. So here's the work that we're doing to repair that. And so we're going to put some swales over here because there's there's all this mud that's running off of these hills because this is supposed to be a jungle, but somebody destroyed the jungle. And and maybe it's because they're trying to grow something there. Because, like, when you're in a tropical area, a lot of times what they do is that they'll um, cut down the jungle and then they'll run cattle in there until nothing will grow and then they'll bring cattle out and it's like okay now that's just wasteland and they move on to the next chunk of jungle um because the soils there tend to be really close to dirt and so once they cut down the jungle stuff doesn't tend to do well there without the canopy so willie smith is restoring the canopy on this piece of land that's been destroyed. And then they're also going to do a bunch of coral restoration. So, I mean, the whole video is only like about two minutes long. I just thought it was amazing. And I thought it was cool that he sent me the video so I could put it on my channel. I, I felt like that was for us. But you guys saw it, right? I did. I thought it was I really did. interesting. Yeah. Yes, it was. Nice and quick. Yeah. And there's another video that I'll be putting out in a couple of days, and I think that you guys have all seen that as well because I made it available to all of my Patreon peeps on uh, the the PW vids, the video Patreon peeps, um, the one about your carbon footprint to zero and uh, eleven things you can do. Um, have you as have all of you seen that? I have not seen it yet. Okay. All right. Well, I think it's, I've seen you talk about this somewhere. It's some some permies uh, thread or something like that. Okay. Well, the Bernal brothers asked me to to write something and then narrate something, and then they'd put images behind it. Like apparently they're sitting on a gold mine of images, and they're like, they just want me to say something. And so we kind of did some back and forth, and we came up with this idea of, like, setting your carbon footprint to zero. And so I made a list 
Um, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and, uh, uh, I'm trying to like look up cause I know, cause part of it is, is that I, I wrote something. There it is. Here it is. I, uh, somebody posted this cool image out at Reddit and it's called recycling the toxic blame game, recycling, recycling the toxic blame, something like that. And I thought it was an awesome image. It's, uh, I guess, a, a meme, I suppose. I'm not sure if it's a meme. But basically, they took the recycle image, and they put, at the three points, they put people, politicians, and corporations. And and for each of them, they listed why they wouldn't do it themselves, and then the blame that they put on the other two. I thought it was just amazing. Um and it's all on the recycle image, recycling the blame. And uh, I thought, what, what an amazing image. It's so good. Whoever thought of this is brilliant. Um, and so I commented on it. And I said, for those that want to give a thought to their own stuff, the average American adult carbon footprint is 30 tons per year. And so I listed off a few things, switch to electric cars, two tons, laundry with cold water in a, a, a line or a drying rack. Four tons. So you save more carbon. Your carbon footprint reduction is twice as massive with just a cold water and a clothesline than if you bought an electric car. Um, so anyway, I, I, I shared a little of this and that. Then I talked about food and I said a strict vegan diet, a strict vegan diet will cut four and a half tons per year. Uh, compared to the standard American diet, also known as the SAD diet. Uh, an omnivore diet with 100% of animal products coming from 100% pastured sources will save 6.5 tons per year. But the grand champion is that if, uh, a garden, you can cut 10 tons per year. So I want to really emphasize the garden. Is When it comes to food, it's like, you know, the garden is clearly the champion. Then I talked about heat and rocket mass heaters and using microheaters in, in an electric heat situation instead of heating the whole house electric. And then I did the thing that I, I've been doing for the last, I don't know, three months, four months, the apple a day thing. And I say that if you eat an apple a day and you take the seeds and you tuck it in your pocket and you plant them when you get the chance, if 5% reach maturity, you've sequestered 100 tons of carbon per year. That's it. That's, that was the whole thing that I said. Now, I, I think that the video or the, not the video, the, uh, I mean, it's basically, this is basically what the video says. This is what's going to be in the video that comes out. That's it. The video is like two minutes long. And that's all that it says. The image was amazing, and so I commented, and my comment did really well. It got like a whole bunch of upvotes on Reddit. That's how Reddit's driven, is by votes. The thing that was bizarre is people lost their shit. Like, like you would think that, that the focus would be like, wow, a garden, really, a garden, and the apple a day thing, that's amazing. And, and rocket mass heater, oh, please tell me more about a rocket mass heater. Look at all that. No, 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 no. People lost their shit. 
over the how veganism didn't do as well as an omnivore's diet with 100% of the animal products coming from 100. So once again, strict vegan diet, you save 4.5 tons per year. Omnivore diet with 100% of animal products from 100% pasture sources save 6.5 tons per year. And the garden saved 10 tons per year. And people ignored the garden. They ignored the apple a day thing. They ignored the heat stuff. They ignored all the other stuff. The only thing that they could see was how you save two tons more if 100% of your animal products come from 100% pastured sources. Lost their shit. Not only did they lose their shit and go absolutely psychotic crazy, but my post where I shared this was deleted because it is greenwashing. So there you go. That's that's kind uh. of my, my big news from last week. I apparently am advocating something that is greenwashing entirely because I talk about and now now okay here's a here's another thing is it's like uh, all these people are kind of like um, uh, cite the research or it's or it's bullshit or you're lying your ass off for the sake of greenwashing and I didn't because I just don't have the time to go look it all up and I kind of felt like I'm not your fucking Google mommy go look it up I know for a fact. Now I've, I've looked at the research before. I've seen the research, and it's and it basically says this is true. But at the same time, I know it's true because I've experienced it firsthand. When you do panic shift systems, you get like five times more growies. It is bizarre. And when I've presented, I've asked, "Has anybody else experienced this?" And yes, there's always a few people in the audience that have experienced the exact same thing. Um. And I know that many of our permaculture greats have talked about experiencing this firsthand. They talk about doing it as well. And it is just a bizarre thing. So if you get five times more growies, that means the root systems are five times more magnificent also. So you're sequestering five times more carbon. Anyway, um, I, I kind of feel like, uh, maybe we need a thread out at Permies that's like, here's all the research to back up what Alan Savory is saying, what Joel Salatin is talking about, all these people. I mean, I, I subscribed to the Stockman Grass Farmer Journal for more than a decade, just reading everything cover to cover. Um, I, I just kind of feel like, you know, I guess, I guess what we need is that Permies, we need a link to a whole bunch of the research to back it all up, so we could just uh, point at that one link at Permies to go to all the stuff to back it all up. I do like the idea of drawing people over to Permies, so that seems good. But do you think that they were good faith actors? Do you think they were just like promote my thing and negative on everything that's not me, or do you think like they really they really were feeling like they would that that was they were serious about believing that was untrue? I think that they authentically thought that what I said was untrue and the reason why they think that is a they are completely anonymous on on reddit i use my own name on reddit because i just feel weird being anonymous 
but they're completely anonymous. There's no need for them to say anything rational. I think that they'll, they'll, they will get their way more if they are irrational because they're anonymous. And that's kind of how a lot of this works. The idea of standing behind your name and um, that kind of thing uh, is, is uh, and so I don't know. It seems like there have been a couple of times on Reddit where I would post and somebody would get excited that it was me and is it like is it really you and uh, and I, I appreciate that that's fine that's cool but you know in this case I'm, I'm spreading greenwashing it seems like if if you've got a good faith person who, who would be willing to listen to other people um, and then you could say this this sounds like it's not going to be true because it's amazing but if you look at this research and it is true you could maybe potentially get someone really excited about this this thing that seems like you know it sounds like a, a wonderful thing that might not be true, but then they find out it really is true, then they could be really happy and excited about that. But if they're if they're just looking for ways to shoot down other people, or they're just like like you said, trying to not not willing to think deeply. I don't know how to say that. I I don't feel like I have a lot of time to spend on Reddit, and um, but I pop out there from time to time, and so I saw that. I really liked that graphic. Yeah. And so I took the time to write this thing. And then I felt like I, and I did, I answered questions for a bit. And then I went on my merry way. I, I had so many of the things I was doing. Um, and so, I mean, this is part of where I get frustrated with Reddit is, is it's kind of like, um, that, an authority on the topic has the same level, has the same amount of authority as uh, an anonymous troll. Everybody's word is the same. And um, so my, my word has no greater weight than anybody else. Than, in fact, um, for the longest time, it seems like whatever I wrote, was followed up immediately by a person who was a heroin addict. Like, I went and looked at their post history, and they said, it has been four days since the last time I used. And it's like, okay, so my word has the same weight as a heroin addict. And this person was talking about what a monster I am in the world of permaculture. And so I kind of feel like, really? I'm a, I, you know... I, cause I kind of feel like I do a lot for the world of permaculture and this person really doesn't agree and feels the need to follow me and stay and say as much. So, um, I kind of felt like I'd rather go nose to nose with Mark Shepard or, um, Jeff Lawton or Seth Holzer or Willie Snitz as opposed to Let's talk or about Helen Atow. or or Helen Atow, sure, as opposed to anonymous troll heroin addict, <laughs> and uh, and I kind of feel like I just don't have time to, because it's like if you've ever tried to have a conversation with somebody at Thanksgiving, like Uncle Ralph, 
who's like absolutely crazy. And, and it's like crazy always wins. You just, I know I don't have that much patience and crazy interrupts. Crazy won't let you have a say. Crazy feels like your, um, references are all bullshit. Um, and, uh, they'll just, and their proof is by the fact that they can say it even louder. And I just kind of feel like, wow, I, I just don't have the time for that. So anyway, there you go, everybody. That's been my week. What have you guys got for last week? Huh? <laughs> well, I wanted to say that, Katie, um, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And, Paul, I appreciate the commentary that you just shared. Um, Katie, you and I are rational people, and we put weight in statistics and not in, um, you know, emotions have their place, but they don't get to rule the day just because they're emotions. And that's, um, you know, when you interact with people like that, you can't have a conversation from a rational point of view. So I, I would look forward to having more conversations with you. <laughs> that would be lovely. <laughs> and I'm the crazy one. <laughs> oh, but you know crazy it. And you'll let it know. Thank you. I, uh, I kind of feel like, you know, I, what I appreciate about Hermes is that because what these guys are trying to do is they're trying to say that there is the truth. There is only one truth. And I kind of feel like, especially when with anything that has to do with biology, there are many schools of thought. And, uh, I mean, hell, even in physics, there's many schools of thought. And so um, I I kind of feel like at Permeus we allow discussion of the many schools of thought, and we don't allow any one person to say that person's lying or whatever. So, um, I'm, you know, what, do, what was I thinking was going to happen if I go out to Reddit? So, uh, you know, once again, it's like, just, it's just need to, you know, shut the fuck up on, or just don't go out to Reddit anymore. What am I doing? I'm being dumb. All right. Desert or Paradise with Sepulter. Um, oh, oh man. In fact, this, this is the one where he gives his tips on growing lemon trees outdoors in the, in the Alps. We're going to get to that here in a moment. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff about animals, but let's get started here. Um, what to do with insect overpopulation? Insect overpopulation is a visible sign of incorrect cultivation, and it usually indicates the use of agricultural chemicals. The natural balance has been disturbed. When May beetles eat whole fields of grain. When Colorado potato beetles destroy the whole crop. When bugs eat all the blossom on a fruit tree and weaken it. The insect is not the pest, but the human being imposing his will onto nature. Using pesticides at the first sign of pests is not a good idea. It is a short-term solution, and it only treats the symptom, not the cause. The plants would have tolerated a small number of pests, and natural predators would have appeared to eat these. But ladybirds and earwigs are at the end of the food chain, however, 
and all the toxins accumulate in their bodies when they eat the pests, and they die. Pests, on the other hand, develop resistance to pesticides and begin to thrive. With all of their predators gone, the crops and monocultures are eventually doomed. There's only one way to protect crops from pests. Do not plant monocultures. Encourage natural predators by providing habitats for them. Watch and learn from nature. (laughs) Oh, that was just perfect. That was just delicious. Oh, and before I go on to the next thing on that page, there's a practical tip on page 162. The ladybird, so it's a practical tip, how to encourage ladybirds, earwigs, and other useful creatures. Now, I I guess what's being said here is that earwigs are a general carnivore. And it seems like he's also trying to suggest that earwigs like to eat um, aphids, like that's their favorite food. And I, I didn't, I didn't know that about earwigs. So when you see earwigs, maybe you're kind of thinking like, oh, there must be a, a lot of aphids about, and the earwigs are going to go eat all those aphids. I had never made that connection. The ladybird is one of the best known beneficial insects. Its larvae eat about 400 aphids per day. And fully grown, it still eats about 200 a day. Numbers for the earwigs are similar. You can increase their numbers by filling an old flower pot with straw or wood shavings, wrapping it in chicken wire, and hanging it upside down in the affected tree. Alternatively, place a piece of tree bark next to a tree. Ladybirds and earwigs will live and thrive there while being protected from birds. The numbers will increase in proportion to the number of the existing pests. Ladybirds and earwigs will reduce the population of aphids and other insects to a healthy number. Oh, ladybirds eat things other than aphids? Um... Let's see. Ladybirds and earwigs will reduce the population of aphids and other insects to a healthy number without completely eradicating them, as otherwise they will run out of food. I can easily tolerate the remaining numbers as a farmer or gardener. What have you guys observed earwigs eating? Have you observed them eating anything? Never. Yeah, I just, I see them. You know, I see bunches of them. Um, when I see them, I see them in areas that I don't think there's any food. So I have no idea what they eat. Yeah. Now they're, they're called earwigs because they get in the ears of corn. So sometimes when you're shucking corn, it's like there's an earwig. I, it never occurred to me that they were in there trying to find bugs or something in there. Yeah. But maybe I've seen they, them in blueberry bunches. Like if you're picking blueberries from these big bunches, sometimes you'll get a little handful that contains a few earwigs, which I thought was kind of terrible. Um, but they must have been in there eating the bugs. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is astounding to me. This is this is wonderfully delicious. All right, the next part: what to do 
with acid soil. Farmers usually use lime to treat soil that is too acidic in which to grow plants. Again, this is treating the symptom, not the cause. And the treatment needs to be repeated and costs money. It is not a natural way of dealing with the problem. And using artificial substances, organic or not, is an act of working against nature. Holy shit. So using lime on your soil is an act of working against nature. I need to find the original reasons for the acidity in the ground instead. What is nature telling me? Maybe this is not the right place for a field, and I should build a pond instead. Maybe I need to find ways to allow the water to move in a different direction. By giving the water a space to collect that will help to restore the hydrological balance in the whole surrounding area, will benefit from it. I can then grow vegetables on terraces and in the area around the pond. High acidity can also be a result of the overuse of fertilizers or the overcultivation of the soil. That's a new one to me. I had never heard of that. I think high acidity is usually from an area that has a high amount of rainfall. That's been my experience is the number one contributor. There's also a lot of acidic soil around conifer trees. When I continuously add manure, compost, or even artificial fertilizer to the surface layer of the ground, it will become oversaturated with nutrients. This is like eating bacon without bread day after day, and at some point the stomach cannot cope with it anymore. The same is true for the soil. Eventually, it cannot absorb the nutrients anymore. There is too much nitrogen in the ground, and the crops start rotting in the field. The use of lime at this stage treats the symptom and creates dependency, because it will need to be used again and again in order to get good yields out of my crops. Good rooting and aeration of the ground are the best measures to combat, to combat high acidity levels in the soil. One way of achieving this is by loosening the ground with a mini digger. Dig 50 centimeters deep. All right, so 50 centimeters, that's half a meter, right? Did that, right? Yeah, half a meter. So like a foot and a half. Dig 50 centimeters deep and mix. This will bring unaffected soil higher up and help balance the soil. If I do not have manure or compost readily available, I simply plant red and white clover, foxglove, comfrey, and lupin because they will root and activate the soil, thereby balancing it out. In addition to this, I plant vegetables especially root vegetables. The plants will support each other and provide all the required nutrients. Now, I know that Sep never puts down lime, and I know that also Joel Salatin never puts down lime. Um, and so I'm going, I'm not sure, does Gabe, I would imagine Gabe Brown might put down lime. Does anybody know? 
don't know. Nope. Okay. All right. Um, so I, I have not put down any lime here. We have had some spots where we've put out some ash from, um, uh, you know, all the rocket mass heaters and stuff. All right. Any, any comments about insect overpopulation or what to do with acid soil? I thought it was really interesting. Um, because in, it, it sort of made me second, second guess something I've thought about before. Because in Hawaii, a lot of times you'll see this very red soil. It's actually really beautiful. If you have the green grass and then a really red soil and a really blue sky, it's like, wow, those are really vibrant colors. But people would always say, oh, it's really natural for this soil to be so, um, well, it's, it's red because the iron content is showing because it's basically dead soil substrate, <laughs> earth substrate dirt, um, and all it has is the minerals baked in the sun. There's no vegetation in those areas. And um, and people would just say, oh, that's natural. That's just how it gets here. But it's, I don't think it's natural because if, if you look in the forest, if you haven't like, mulched up all the trees, then it's actually really good, nice, dark earth um, with worms and everything. So uh, I think it's not natural. And, think, uh, you know, people would say, oh, it's natural for this area. And I'd be like, okay, I believe you. And then maybe it's it's not. <laughs> I think that the, the acidic soils can happen easily. And maybe it's natural for it to easily happen. But I think it, I should address it and not just consider it natural and have it be more natural to grow uh, a nice polyculture, a diverse root system and heal it. I, I agree. And I also think that there's uh, a lot of stuff that, that you can play. So, for example, comfrey is a great example. Um, comfrey tends to have a deep, deep taproot because part of what Sep was saying was to mix your subsoil with your topsoil and break that cycle. And so he's basically suggesting that the top layer of soil is going to be acidic, but your subsoil is going to be less so or not acidic. And so if you mix it up, then you're going to be getting this spot where the problem of the acidic soil has been broken. But uh, and then you can start growing things there that will help to even things out. But comfrey will uh, put out a deep taproot, find calcium, and bring it up and exude it from the leaves, thus making the area around a comfrey plant be less acidic, which is why comfrey, comfrey does so well next to fruit trees, because fruit trees tend to like a slightly more alkaline soil, or not exactly that, maybe more a better way to put it is a slightly less acidic soil. And so with the comfrey dropping all of that calcium there, it's making that soil a little bit more alkaline, less acidic. So I, I think that, uh, yes, life in the soil, living life, especially where you are in a tropical area, I mean, nearly all of your, oftentimes in a tropical area, the soil is, is completely depleted. And then the only life in the soil is the living material, the living plants. And so having just dirt is like, uh, I think it's going to be much better with a lot of, of plants. And in fact, Seb's going to get to something here where he's talking about making sure that, that there is no exposed dirt, that you have a full canopy. And if you do have any exposed dirt, then that's where you throw down mulch. But like, Mulch comes after. Mulch comes after having a full canopy. So, 
Anyway, yeah. all right. I want to say, Paul, that I think this book is worth it for these three pages because I learned so much. Um, and if we want to plug the book, we can say that Amazon will sell it to you in a Kindle version for $22 or a hundred and something if you want a paper <laughs> copy. So it's still extremely expensive to buy this. But Chelsea Green has other set books that are on sale right now. So if people want some set filter books, go check out Chelsea Green's website and see what they have on sale. Somebody at the summer events this year told me that um, uh, they went to one of the little bookstores in Missoula, and this little bookstore in Missoula had Desert of Paradise sitting there just for the regular price. What does it say on the back here? Oh, the version, the, the copy I have came from permanent publications. It came from uh, England, so it's got the prices in, in British pounds, sixteen ninety-five in British pounds. But um, the current Chelsea Green price is thirty, twenty-nine ninety-five, or something like that. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Um, I I think that um, uh, it's possible. You know. If you're coming through Missoula, <laughs> try the little bookstores, and uh, and maybe you'll pick up a copy for cheap. Save yourself like uh, what seventy bucks or something. <laughs> yeah. No reason to come to Missoula. All right. The next uh, section is called irrigation. I watch nature first. How is irrigation happening naturally? How do plants get enough moisture, say, in a forest? A healthy, mixed forest functions like a sponge. The ground, the leaves, roots, and the ponds, and puddles are all full of water. The saturated ground provides moisture to the ground-covering vegetation from below. The vegetation protects the soil and its roots Wait, vegetation protects the soil and its roots, air, and, you know, there's like a typo in here or something. The vegetation protects the soil and its roots, air, and activate the soil by keeping the hydrological balance intact. A layer of fallen leaves protects the soil from drying out. Fallen wood and root trunks in and on the ground absorb water as part of their decaying process and the water is slowly released and taken up by the roots of the neighboring plants. All right, so basically, Google culture in the wild is what he's saying. And, like, that's how, that's how nature does it. And I, and I think that the whole concept of the sponge that's in the forest is perfectly accurate. So I think I've got a whole podcast referring to the lake that's in the forest, which is basically the, this, this same sponge that's just a few inches thick. All right. Uh, here's a few of his rules of thumb for irrigation. Most important and sustainable is a good hydrological balance. This ensures sufficient dew and vegetation that, in return, prevents the soil from drying out. I generally recommend watering less. Most gardeners water too much too often, and this spoils the plants and makes them dependent 
they need watering after being planted out. But after that, I reduce watering. Plants will then grow deeper roots, bringing up water and nutrients from greater depths. This will make healthier roots that aerate the soil and thereby create the perfect growing conditions for crops. I reduce the need for water by keeping the ground covered with vegetation throughout the year. Uh, Stacked planting according to height further ensures the plants support themselves. Mulching is excellent when the ground is not covered with vegetation as it allows the soil to retain All right. Anything else you guys want to talk about for irrigation? No? It's perfect just the way it is. I'm surprised that he's talking so much about irrigation, but I guess it, that there are times that it really needed. It. it seems like he mostly doesn't irrigate. He mostly has a big pond. I, yeah, that's true. Is he has a big, he has a lot of ponds. So he's got about 110 acres and 72 ponds at the Kramer Hall. Yeah, not, not a big pond. That, is that not accurate? And, and so I think that what he's getting out of it is that there's going to be a lot more dew in the area is is his general strategy um and and I'm not sure how much it's cuz I kind of feel like when you're in Florida you get this insane amount of dew and I feel like we get dew here too but it's nothing like the amount of dew that they get in Florida and I kind of have to wonder about how much dew does he get. But, of course, you know, he has all those ponds. I, I kind of would really love for somebody else that goes out to the Parameter Hall specifically. Like, can you go out at dawn and can you see how much dew there is there? I'm just powerfully curious now. But if it's a lot, I mean, that's that's an amazing source of effectively a type of irrigation. Now, I gotta say that I, um, he, he does talk about if you're gonna be irrigating, then of course use drip. And if, uh, if you're not gonna use drip, then like water as close to the ground as possible, but a sprinkler is a really bad idea. Um, talks about stuff like that. But, um, man, I do not like drip systems. And, and I think that they're effective. They do the job. They do the job well. They're they're great at what they do, but they plug, and um, uh, you know it's it's a challenge to get them to last more than one season, and so then you're just buying plastic over and over and over again because they're all plastic, and that part that part bugs me. And so I want to get to the I'm I I want to I I kind of feel like okay, feel free to irrigate with a watering can or with a bucket, you know, then, then it's kind of like that's going to automatically reduce the amount of irrigation that you do. Or I suppose you get out a hose and use a hose and then, yeah, try to get the water as close to the ground as possible as you're watering. Um, but yeah, the, the whole thing about the drip systems, they are effective and they do use less water and they are so smart in so many ways. 
there's so much plastic. It just, just irritates me. I'm, I, I want to I wanna find ways to do this with much less plastic. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.